So this is uh, week two of relationship goals. I hope you have some relationship goals. If you uh, are looking to be a good friend, if you're looking to have a great date, if you want to be a, a good husband, wife, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whatever it is, we want to talk about these relationships that bring life to us. I hope you have some relationship goals. Maybe it's around friendships. Uh, I was just out in Colorado the last few days. There's some meetings out there for our denomination, and so Thursday through Saturday, I was back in Arvada, Colorado, where I was for 13 years before coming here. So I got to see old friends and sit at coffee and catch up with people. I stayed in my friend's basement. It's kind of a dream I've always had to live in his basement. Um, so, uh, you know, one of my goals as a friend is like to continue to be a friend, even though we're hundreds of miles apart now. I'm not really good at long distance friendships. And so this was a, you know, one of the goals I'm seeing continue, which I'm really happy about that I can keep those friendships going. What are, what are some of your relationship goals? What are they about? If you're wanting to, maybe you're wanting a great date to make a new connection with someone that you might find a love of a lifetime, you know, dating is not easy. You guys remember that song, Love is a Battlefield? You know, it's pretty accurate, pretty accurate. Um, your relationship goals could be around marriage, learning how to be a partner to someone that you've made a commitment to, something that, the commitment that ended with something like, till death do us part, you know, and some days that feels a little more real than other days, right? Um, I've got some uh, relationship memes I want to share with you, some, some images of relationship goals that might help us get going this morning. The first one's around friendship, so look at this picture. Friendship goals, these are six guys who have grown up together over the decades, and I think it's a great picture that kind of captures what some of our experiences in friendship. Some of you have friends like this. You've been friends since kindergarten, and now your friends, as your kids are going into kindergarten or your grandkids are going into kindergarten, you still have those friendships and relationships and, and that's amazing that friendship can look like that. That's not been my experience. I moved around quite a bit when I was a kid, you know, New Jersey, Tennessee, Colorado, Minnesota. And so I really don't have any friends from my elementary school years. I got one friend, um, but he lives on the East Coast. I never see him. So this might be some of your story. Others of you might have different kinds of stories. But we all need these kinds of, we need friends. And I hope that through the series, we can think about those friends that we want to learn how to love in a deeper way, in a better way. Scripture, the Old Testament uh, wisdom literature says this about friendship. A friend loves at all times. He is there, she is there to help when trouble comes. And we want to be those kinds of friends that we show up when trouble comes. Here's another uh, image that relates to the free life when you're flying solo. Here's this one. Everyone's falling in love and I'm just like, <laughs> boom. I love that kid, man. Just digging into the meal. I mean, something like, I'm, I'm leaning into life. Everybody else is over here falling in love. I'm just doing my life. And uh, that's just an awesome image of that. I've been coupled up in my life more than I've been single, but the seasons of singleness in my life have, God's been used them to really help me connect with him in deeper ways and meaningful ways. And uh, Paul writes about that in the New Testament. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, I want you to live as free of complications as possible. When you're unmarried, you're free to concentrate on simply pleasing God, pleasing the master. Marriage involves you in all the nuts and bolts of domestic life and in wanting to please your spouse, leading to so many more demands on your attention. The time and energy that married people spend on caring for and nurturing each other, the unmarried can spend in becoming whole and holy instruments of God. I like how Paul says that. Angelo, my wife, was single for 20 years before we got married, and that was actually one of the things that attracted me to her, was the ways that she loved other people, how she invested her life in the lives of others, how she loved God. And it just, it just came out of her life as, as she was flying solo. So a couple more memes here. These last two are about married life. So here's a, one about marriage. 
Knowing what your spouse needs, like keeping her hair out of the spaghetti sauce, right? That's very practical uh, relationship goal there. And then one more here, and uh, you know, relationship goals. An audible sigh, all right. This is some of your stories. You've been married for decades, walking together, learning to love one another. We know you're not perfect, but you have made it through so many ups and downs. And those of us that, you know, look to you as an example, as, you know, that's, I want to, I want to be like that when I grow up. And so uh, that's a great image, a testimony of what God has been doing in your life. So no matter what kind of relationships you have going on, God can help us learn to love each other in in new and deeper ways. And I I really hope we can embrace some relationship goals as we go through these weeks together. And what I want for us, what I want for you, what I want for me, is that we could become the kinds of people that other people are looking for. That we could become the kinds of people that other people are wanting to know and understand and and lean into when it comes to friendship or, or dating or marriage, whatever that looks like. God cares about our relationships And he created us to know and love others. So last week we identified a couple of relationship myths. We named two different myths that sometimes we believe and we follow that have to do with our relationships. Anybody remember the first one? Yes, we actually said it was the right person myth, but the perfect person myth works as well. The right person myth, it says that we think that if we were to find the right person, that everything would be all right. If we could just find that awesome right person, that everything would make sense to us and be all right for us. Our lives would be better. And this is really a deadly myth when you are in relationship, when you are married, let's say, with someone that you, you believed was the right person, and now it's a few years down the road and you're not so sure, and you're like, maybe, maybe I found the wrong right person, and I need the next right person to make life make sense. And that's when it really gets dangerous. We're really good at, at fantasizing about the perfect person, laying in bed and looking at the ceiling and just dreaming up Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, whoever that might be. And there's not a lot of us laying in bed at night looking at the ceiling, fantasizing about becoming the right kind of person instead of looking for the right kind of person, that, that God wants to do some work in us to transform us, to create in us something new. We think if I find that right person, then finally I'll be happy, finally things will be better, and, and it's just a myth. We know it's a myth. We're adults. We know this is a myth. So the question I left you with last week was, are you becoming the person that the person you're looking for is looking for? Are you becoming the person that the person you're looking for is looking for? And if you're married, another way to say that is, or are you becoming the person that the person you married was hoping for, right? Are you allowing yourself to continue to grow and transform through the grace of God? Second myth, first myth was the right person myth. The second myth was the promise myth. And this myth says that if I can, I can promise my way into a great relationship, I can, I can commit, I can say I'm all in, I do whatever it is, and everything will work out. All I need is a promise and a party, you know, a promise and a vow, a vow and a party, and, and, and relational bliss is in front of me, right? And we know that that's just not, not true. We need to prepare that a promise is no substitute for preparation. We prepare for all sorts of things in our lives. We prepare for work. We prepare for sports, for vacations, and somehow when we get into a friendship or we get into a marriage relationship, we figure, we're just going to figure out how to be a good friend or how to be a good spouse. It's just going to happen automatically. If I make a commitment to them, it'll just come about. But that's not how it works out. We've got to practice. We've got to prepare to be the kind of friend, the kind of spouse that the other person is looking for. And there's a pastor, Andy Stanley, out in Georgia, and he, he preached through this sermon series. He's informed a lot of what we're talking about in these weeks together. And he talks about this. He brings up the promise myth, and he says this. When you are accountable, but you're not capable, you're eventually 
miserable. When you make a commitment, when you say, I do, when you say, I'll be there for you, you make a, a commitment, you're accountable, but you're, if you're not capable to do that, then you're going to be miserable. And all the married people said, amen, amen. right, right, amen. When you pledge your life to someone, when you stand before your friends and family and God and you say, in sickness and health, in season and out of season, toilet seat, up or down, you know, it doesn't matter, uh, I am with you through this. We make these promises, but if we don't prepare, if we don't practice learning how to love well, surrender in our lives to the other person, we're not going to be able to live out those promises. And that's when it feels miserable. But Jesus gives us hope. Jesus says there's a way that you can be transformed. Jesus invites us to stay connected to him, to experience his love. And as we experience his love and his grace and his care, we can grow in our ability to love others well. When you read the stories of Jesus in the Bible, he's, in, he's inviting us into something. What is he inviting us into? He's not inviting us to promise me. He doesn't say promise me things. He's not inviting us to cheer for him. He, he says, certainly I'm not here to, don't negotiate with me. What does Jesus say? He says, follow me, follow me. Pursue life the way that I've lived life. Follow my example. Look at the way that I love others and learn how to love others the way that I have. And that's kind of where we left it off last week. So this morning, I want to start to lean into, so what does that love look like? The love of Jesus, how is it different from other kinds of loves? What does it mean to love like Jesus loved? What does that look like? I want to talk about that this morning, about our friendships, our marriages, our, our families, how we can live out this kind of love. What's the fine print of this love we're talking about, because there's always fine print, you know? So what is the fine print? This fine print will make you fine. This fine print will make you uh, worth finding, someone worth keeping, someone who knows how to be a good friend, a good spouse. The kind of love that we're going to talk about this morning has a gravity to it, a way of like pulling people in. They're, they're interested in this kind of love that we're going to talk about. So I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to look at the fine print that, that Paul writes to us about this kind of love that Jesus is talking about. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. This letter Paul wrote to a, a little faith community of Jesus followers in the ancient city of Corinth, which isn't too far from Athens, Greece. And he uh, came into that town 2,000 years ago, and he stayed for about a year and a half. And when he left, there was a, a little church there that got started. And he wrote letters to them after he left. He'd write back to them. And we have two of those letters in the Bible. And this is one of them, 1 Corinthians 13. And what we see Paul doing in this passage is what he does in all of his writing in the New Testament. And he's trying to help people understand what Jesus meant when Jesus said these words in John 13. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And what we see Paul doing is helping people define what that love looks like. How do you apply that command? Because in Paul's day, love was really misunderstood. In his culture, love was, was attached to all sorts of broken relationships and abuse and suffering and pain. In the Greek pantheon of worship, their love goddess, it involved uh, prostitution and forcing yourself on people and hurtful things. And Paul said, I got to redefine what love looks like for you. And so that's what we see Paul doing in the New Testament, taking Jesus as one command, love as I have loved you, and, and applying it to different situations in life. Paul's not writing about new commandments for us. He's taking this one commandment from Jesus to love in a new way, and he's helping us understand how do we do that. So 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, we see him writing about this love. So look at that with me. Follow along as I read. If I speak in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries, all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but I do not have love, I have gained nothing. And then in verse 4, he says, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. One little last phrase he says, love never fails. Paul's beginning to help us understand this love. And he starts by saying, you can do amazing things. You could put on a great performance. You could speak with power and open up the mysteries of the universe. You can have tremendous faith that changes the reality of your world. You can give your money, all of your money to help others. All these external things that you can do to influence and be trending in every corner of your world. He says, but if you're not loving as Jesus loved, Paul says, you're accomplishing nothing. If you can't love, it's all nothing. Turn to somebody around you and say, if you can't love, it's all nothing. Go ahead and do that. If you can't love, it's all nothing. Don't say you're nothing. Don't say that. Say it's all nothing. All right? If you can't love, all these incredible things you might do, Paul says, they won't matter if you're not doing them in a loving way. They won't bring the grace and mercy and presence of God into your life and the lives of others if you can't do them in love. And this is hard teaching. It's hard to understand. Maybe not for you, but it is for me. You know, that all the good things we do, all the good deeds that we try to accomplish, that they're like filthy rags without love. Motives matter. That's what Paul is saying. He wants us to see that God is moving in our lives and what motivates us to love others, it, it matters. If we want to make a difference in the lives of others, we need to learn how to love like Jesus. Well, what, what does this love look like? He starts to give us a list. Verse four it says, love is, and what's the first one? Love is patient, right? This love, this love is not pushy. If someone is pushing you, they're not loving you. That's what Paul is saying. Love doesn't push, doesn't rush, doesn't force. Love is a choice that we make. It's, this is the kind of love that Jesus reveals to us, a love that chooses to move at the pace of the other. It doesn't pressure people to move at our pace. It surrenders to the pace of the loved one. Because you and me, we have a natural pace in our lives a natural way that we move through this world, how the speed at which we, we move, and we see it physically, right? If you ever walk through a mall or an airport with someone that you care about and they're like in front of you or behind you, it's just hard to kind of match the same rhythm that they're walking. Uh, that's the idea. We, we all walk at a different pace, but it's natural for us. It's normal for us. And what love does, because love is, is patient, it changes its pace for the other person, even when it doesn't feel natural to us, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Love is a decision to pause rather than push. You could write that one down. Love is a decision to pause rather than push. Love says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna discover your pace. I'm gonna slow down. I'm gonna speed up based on what you are pacing. I'm gonna be patient. You see, love like this, Jesus is kind of love. It defers, it defers to the other. I'll release my preferences and I'll instead meet you in your preferences. Why is it that love does this? Because that's what God does for us. God is love, and that's how God 
lives and moves towards us. He met us in our pace. Can you imagine if God didn't change his pace for us? <laughs> we would have no knowledge of him. We'd have no connection with him. We couldn't experience his presence if he didn't, like a good teacher, pause and stoop down and kind of get at our level, speak our language, meet us where we are. If he hadn't done that for us, we would have no knowledge of him. He accommodates our capacity. That's, isn't that a good thing that he does that for us? And then Jesus says, follow me. As I have loved you, love others. Be patient. Be patient. And we say, yeah, but they're wrong. They're doing the wrong thing. Yeah, but they're not that smart. You know, they're not smart as I am. And God says, well, you're, you're not right, right, all the time. You're not that smart compared to me, God says. He says, be patient. Change your pace. Walk with them. If you want to be a good friend, a good mom, a dad, a good grandparent, a good date, if you want to be a good partner in life, defer to the other. Understand their pace and move at their pace. We need to exercise this patient muscle in us to work it out, stretch it out, practice using it. Love is patient. The next one is love is, what's the second one? Love is kind. Kindness sounds a bit weak, a little bit. At least sometimes it sounds soft, or maybe that's just me. Like if Angela is going to describe me to someone else, I wouldn't want her to say, well, Nate is kind. Okay, that just sounds a little, well, like if she was like, Nate is so gentle, I'd be like, okay, come on, let's get a different, remember, I can still take the lid off the pickle jar with one hand, all right? Let's, uh, you know, let's maybe find a different way to describe how powerful I am, right? We, we feel like love, uh, kindness seems a little weak, but it's really not, kindness is not weak. You want to know what is weak? Unkindness is weak. Unkindness, when you're not able to control yourself, when you can't hold back those words that you want to say, when you can't control the motion of your life, that's, that's weakness. When you choose to show kindness, you're showing that you have a power to restrain yourself, to hold things back. So kindness is remaining present with someone rather than reminding them of their regrets. Kindness says, I will be with you, and I will be with you in your weakness, in your challenges, in your regrets. I won't bring those up over and over again. Kindness doesn't come back to somebody and say, oh, you're doing that again? Why am I not surprised? You know, you made that choice again. That's not kindness. Kindness sits with people and helps them do things they can't do on their own. Kindness is love's response to weakness and regret. And why is it? Why is kindness love's response to weakness and regret? Be because that's how God loves us. God is love, and that's how he loves us. Paul wrote these words. He said, at just the right time, while we were still helpless, Christ died for ungodly people. Finding someone who would die for a godly person is rare. Maybe somebody would have the courage to die for a good person. But Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us when we were not good people. And this demonstrates God's love for us. See, God met us in our rebellion, and he loved us. He matched our pace. Jesus took on humanness and experienced our lives. He was tempted just like we are. Now, he didn't fall into the traps of sin, but he was tempted. And he, he came into this world to show us what kindness looks like what kindness looks like and what it looks like to be loved with kindness. And it brings up a great question if, uh, if perhaps you're dating someone. Are they able to be kind to others? That's a great question to ask about someone you might be interested in dating. Because the way they treat other people in their weakness, the way they treat other people when other people are, are stuck or having a hard day, that's how they're going to treat you eventually. So how they treat you know, the neighbor that bothers them or that coworker, or that family member, how they treat that high schooler in the drive-thru, eventually that's how they're going to treat you. Are they able to be kind 
when someone else is weak. Now, God can always transform people. That's the great hope we have. We're not stuck where we are. We can be transformed. But when, it's just something to be aware of when you're thinking about connecting your life to someone else. Are they able to be kind? So love is patient. Love is kind. And what's next? Love does not envy. And there's three negatives here I just want to hit real quick. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is never proud. Love isn't known for envy. It doesn't get loud about how great it is. It doesn't say, look at me. Only look at me. I want all your attention. The positive way to say this is that love allows other people to shine. Love allows other people to shine. It, It shares the spotlight. It gives the spotlight to others. Even when love has all the reason in the world to be in the spotlight, it steps out and it lifts up the other. Love isn't threatened by other people's successes. Love is able to celebrate when things are going well for people. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you're sharing your story, something important to you, something that you value, and when you finish up, they say, oh, that's nothing. Let me tell you what I did once, and they blah, 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 and they, they go off, right? That's not loving. That's not loving. Not allowing the other person to shine infects our ability to learn from others as well. When we're proud, we have a hard time hearing the ways that we can grow, the ways that we need to be changed by God to better reflect his love. And this has showed up in my marriage with with Angela. When we first got married, uh, I was a single dad with three kids and I was parenting all the ways that I knew best. I was dadding in my own way and I was doing most of the day-to-day parenting by myself. So I had no one outside to bring an outside perspective. So Angela and I got married and she'd been teaching for seven years and she brought a teacher's mentality to our house. You know, this is what, it's a great way to walk with kids. And in my pride and in my boasting, I would tell her about how awesome I was at being consistent with my kids. Like I'm, I'm just, my kids know exactly what I'm going to do all the time. I'm very consistent. I'm perfect when it comes to consistency. And there, yes, an audible laugh is appropriate at that moment. Yeah. Angela helped me see reality, helped me to see the ways that I needed to grow, how I was not consistent in my parenting. And she helped me to, to see those things in, in good ways. And I, I wasn't always a great student, you know, I didn't always want to hear her perspective. And, and why was that? Why is it that we push back sometimes when people are trying to help us? Well, to be honest, I think as parents, we, we know that we're not doing everything we hoped we could be doing. Most of us as parents, we, we might put on a good front, you know, like we got it all together. But behind that mask, there's a lot of, of doubt and fear, like we're making mistakes that we don't really know how we're, how we're supposed to be doing this parenting thing. And so when Angela began to speak into that, I, I got defensive because inside I'm, I'm a little already shaky in those areas. My problem was something that I think is true for many of us, and it's when I don't feel good about myself, it's hard to let others feel good about themselves. When I don't feel good about myself, it's hard to let others speak into my life, to value what they value, to listen to what they might say, to feel good about themselves. Another way to say this is uh, hurting people hurt people. You know, we've said that phrase before. When you're struggling to understand your identity, it's often, it comes out like pride a lot of times. Like we put on this front, like I've got it all together, I'm right, I know this is wrong and I'm right. And a lot of times it's because behind the scenes, we don't have a real good hold on who we are as children of God. Our identity feels kind of fuzzy to us and it's compromised by all the noise in our lives. And so we get defensive and we get prideful and it's hard for us to hear from others. We need to ask God to help us with this. We need to ask the Spirit of God to keep us quiet and to listen and to receive from other people the good things they might want to bring into our lives. I want God to examine my life and to put his finger on all those places where I have envy or boasting or where I'm prideful and for the wrong things or over the wrong reasons. 
And, and this is not just a solo kind of thing that we need. It's not just about me and you and that person next to you, our individual lives learning to love like Jesus. We need to do this together as a community, learning to reveal and express his love to the world around us. Jesus came to earth, and scripture says that he didn't grab onto his divinity when he came to earth. He didn't hold on to his, his power and his privilege and his place. He, he laid it down as the creator, as the son of God, and he walked into our world. And he didn't go into the restaurant and say, hey, that corner booth, just get them out of here. I want that corner booth. That's not, what, that's not how Jesus lived his life. He didn't look over people. He looked people in the eye, especially the people that other religious people were ignoring and blaming and devaluing. Jesus looked at them and saw them and met them right where they were. And since we want to be a community that is following Jesus, we want to be the people of God. We want to love others the way that God loves us. We need to acknowledge our own privilege, our own place and power that we have in our life together, the access we have to things that other people don't have access to. And so in the Bible, we see the Bible often putting together God's love with justice, God's justice and God's shalom. The love that Jesus revealed to us is a love that is to bring all people up, to lift everyone, especially those who are being put down especially those who are being put down by the systems of this world. God's justice seeks to bring about the thriving of all people. Every relationship that you're in, every person you encounter, God created them for a life of fullness and completeness, a life of peace, what our Jewish friends call shalom. And biblical justice is concerned with restoring and sustaining shalom. And that includes not doing the wrong things, which I think we all kind of understand, but it also includes fixing what is broken, restoring what is broken. Whose job is it to fix those things? It's our job as followers of Jesus, as those who've received love from him. He says, as I have loved you, I want you to love others. That's what he calls us to do. To love, is, love is kind. Love is patient. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It seeks the good of the other. If we love like Jesus calls us to love, as Paul describes in this passage, we will lay down our position and our pride and our privilege, and we will listen to the stories of others who have a very different experience than we have in this world, a unique understanding of God's grace and mercy. That's what it means to love well as a community, as a people. I think that's good for today. We've got a lot more to talk about in the next few weeks in this passage, what love looks like. But what I'd love for you to do as we move through these next few weeks is to keep this passage in front of you. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, that dis- defines what love is. So I'd love for you, maybe you can Google it on your phone and then do a screenshot and make that your background on your phone, or you could print it off and put it on your, your refrigerator or your bathroom mirror. But just keep these words in front of you over the next few weeks as we talk about what love looks like, the kind of love that Jesus invites us to live into, to receive from him, and then to share with others. So I want you to listen to these words one more time as we finish up here. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Let's ask God to help us love this way. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to sing a song. I'm going to invite the worship team up at this time, and 
While they're singing that last song, I'm going to invite you to come up for prayer if you'd like to this morning. And maybe there's a relationship in your world that you'd like to pray, have prayer for. Uh, maybe it's just a prayer of thanks for something that God is doing in your relationship that, that is really a good thing. And you just want someone to say, hey, thank God with you about that. So we're going to pray together and then we're going to sing and I'll invite you to come up for special prayer if you'd like that. But let's talk to God together right now. Father, we thank you for your love that is revealed to us through Jesus. That as he, as he loved us, so we are called to love others. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Right now, we're, we're thinking about somebody. We're thinking about a friend, a family member. We're thinking about a spouse or a child or a grandkid. Someone, Lord, that we want to love deeply. But maybe there's some challenges around that. Maybe there's something getting in the way. So, Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us hear from you. Help us have the wisdom in how we can love how we can express this concern that you have for us and we can share that with someone else. We pray that you would help us be patient, that you would help us be kind, that you would keep us from envy and boasting and from pride, that we would be willing to listen to others, that we would be able to seek justice in this world, to, to listen to the stories of others that as a community of faith, we could be people that love well. Father, we ask for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to stand with me right now, and I want to invite our prayer volunteers to come up, and they'll be right up here on either side, up front, and if there's something in your life you'd like prayer for, a relationship that you'd like to lift up, please come up while we're singing and let them pray for you, and uh, be encouraged. Let's sing together. <laughs>